Living Church, we got to get on the move here today. So if you'll open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel, we are going to be uh, continuing on in this story of the life of David. And uh, what a difficult uh, week last week was looking at this mighty man of God who, who fell into sin. And the story ended last week, the chapter ended with a very daunting statement that what David did in his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah, uh, to put it mildly, he said, the scripture says, but this thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. For almost a year, we find that David has not confessed and repented of the sin that he had committed. I'm sure David was like many of us, that rather than running to Jesus, when we have the opportunity to confess our sins and to find forgiveness, we bury it, we hide it. There are so many reactions that we have to sin in our lives. We think that we're getting away with something, but folks, that's never true. That's never what the Word of God teaches us, what we should do, or even that that is ultimately possible. And as that story ended last week with the fact that we knew that He had done evil in His sight, you flip a page, as you do many times in the Bible, and at least nine months have gone by. I learned in seminary that's how long it takes to have a baby. And uh, so we know that that amount of time at least has passed. And I was reminded when I started looking at this text, uh, first time I ever went to the Hilburn's house, uh, Austin, they've got a bunch of chickens over there. Now, I'm, a, I'm not a country boy. I grew up in the city. I didn't know people had chickens if, unless they had like a huge farm. But that's not the way y'all are around here. You like to have chickens even if you just have a, a normal size yard. And, and I was kind of amazed because I'm thinking to myself, how in the world do you keep the chickens in your yard? I mean, it's not like, you know, you have fences up or they had a way to, to keep these things wrangled. And, you know, I watched. It was kind of funny because when Austin went out to show me the chickens, he's like, you want to see chickens? I'm like, who doesn't want to see chickens? So I went out there with them, and uh, I was a little scared because they're scary birds. And <laughs> we went out there, and, and literally as Austin comes out, I mean, it's, it's amazing. They just come out of the woods, and they're coming out from under the, the shrubbery and everything else, and they're just running to Austin, I'm sure, because he's their source of comfort and food or something. And when Austin, uh, you know, he's sitting there explaining things to me, and I'm like, how in the world do you keep the chickens from going everywhere? And he explained to me, they have a roost. Every day when the day is over, guess what? Chickens come home to roost. I never really thought about that term. I never really understood it because I wasn't a farmer and I uh, didn't grow up anywhere but the city. And so he explained to me that wherever they are, every night they're going to go home to roost. Well, that's the way sin is, folks. Sin always comes home to roost. You may think that you're hiding it. You may think that in some way you're able to get away from it or that somehow, and, and you may be able to fool man, but make no mistake, you will not be able to fool God. In the book of Numbers, chapter 32, verse 23, Scripture made it very clear, and He said, and this is the Lord speaking, be sure that your sins will find you out. Just like those chickens that could be dependent on every day to head back to the roost at night, you can be sure of the fact that your sins will come home to you too. I've been saying for weeks as we looked at the life of David and King Saul, it's not an issue over, you know, one was a, a, a good man and one was a bad man, or one was a, a man who didn't sin and the other was a man who sinned greatly. The reality is that both of these men, out, they are sinners. And what is going to set these two men apart is what you're going to see in this text today, among some other things that we've always talked about. But these things today are the essence of why we can look at King David and recognize that he is a man after God's own heart, where the king was earlier rejected King Saul because of his sinfulness. And you can look at their two sins and you might say, well, you know what? It seems like what Saul did was actually less than what David did. I mean, David committed what we would say, are, you know, like the ultimate sins, right? We would say, you know, murder and adultery doesn't get any worse than that. Why was he accepted and why was Saul rejected? Well, it has everything to do with how we respond when we have sin in our life. Because it's, again, not an issue of whether we are sinners. The Lord has already declared that there is no one righteous. No, not one. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And all of eternity hinges on how we respond to that sin in our life. I want you to remember that 
you can't separate your sin from yourself. That, that's a discussion that we really need to have this morning. We think that we're repenting of things. Well, I want you to understand that the things that we do are nothing more than a result of who we are. The Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked. The Bible teaches that we are sinners by nature and by choice. The reality is that we are born in sin, which we're going to hear out of David's own mouth as we look at the Psalms this morning as well. We're going to find this basic truth that the reason that we lie, because most of us would say, you know what, I lied and became a liar. I would argue with you and say, no, you were a liar. And eventually, what did you do? You lied. Listen, we were sinners, and so we sinned. Don't separate out the action from the person. When I say that we need to come to Christ in repentance today, when I say that we need to come to Christ for restoration, I want you to make it intensely personal because he is calling us back to himself. We are the problem. Not what we've done only, but also who we are that has resulted in what it is that we've done. And David is going to come to realize today some things that we realized and that we need to realize in this moment as a body of believers. Let me read to you from God's word this morning. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and he had nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children, and it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup, and it would lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this, this man deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing, and he had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave to you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave to you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has taken away your sin you shall not die. However, because of this deed that you have given because of this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Most of us read this chapter and it's heavy. And the first thing that we talk about today, most of us are going to see as a burden in our life, as something that we would almost say we want to reject or we don't want to have in our lives, but it is a key to what happened in the life of David because David had grown comfortable in his sin. He had hidden this fact from everyone. 
Now, I would argue that at least a few people knew about his sin, and I always wonder, did he think they would tell? Did he worry about the fact that one day it would come out that he'd had an affair, and worse than that, he'd killed Uriah to cover it up? We know that Joab knew. We know that the servants that brought her over to the, ca- or to the, the castle, the palace, they knew. But over a year's time, probably, he had thought and he'd gotten away with it. But remember what I said. You can be sure of one thing in this life, and that is that your sins will find you out. And we ought to consider that a blessing. I want you to see this morning the blessing of a rebuke. Now, see, that just sounds weird. Because a rebuke is almost like that slap in the face that we get from another person who walks up to us and has the audacity to say, you know what, you're wrong. You know what, what you did was sin. Uh, They confront us when we don't want to be confronted. They shine light in the places that we want to keep in the dark. And most of us don't see those moments as a blessing. But I would argue and I would debate with you today that one of the greatest blessings that we have in our lives is when someone loves us enough, when someone sees us in our sin and they don't leave us there. Aren't you glad that God didn't do that? Aren't you glad that Jesus rescued us, that he confronted us, that he made us have to look at the sin that was in our lives and deal with that sin? It all begins with having the courage. I mean, let's be honest. If we're going to share our faith, we've got to love people enough to rebuke them. They can't be saved until they realize that they're sinners. Now, there's a way in which we do it, and I think the prophet does an amazing job. I think the scripture bears out for us. And I'm going to show you a verse here in a minute that that says that, you know what, the rebuke of a brother that's done in kindness, in kindness, that, that we ought to love people and approach them in kindness. I can't help but think of the woman that was caught in adultery, that she sat there before Jesus and everybody else was ready to pick up a stone and condemn her. Jesus just quietly just kneels down and begins to write in the sand whatever it was that he wrote. And he looks at everybody and says, if any of you are without sin, you can feel free to stone her. And everybody just walks off one by one until it's just Jesus and her. And he looks at her and says, I don't condemn you. Where are those that condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. But he said, you know what? You've got to deal with your sin and you've got to get up and you've got to stop sinning. Over and over, we find that if we're going to share our faith with people, we've got to let them know the bad news so that they can understand the good news. The reality of the need of a Savior. And folks, there are so many of us that the reason that we're still struggling in the sins that we are in is because we are in the dark. What is unfortunate is that there are many believers around us that while we may be stuck in our sins and while we may be struggling in our marriages and in our relationships and in the things that we say and the things that we do, what is so hard to me is to know that how many times, I mean, this is probably one of those frustrating things for me as a pastor. It's when someone's life is so distraught, when they are so broken, when when literally they, they seem like they are at the point of absolute no return And I finally find out that, hey, this has been going on and this is what they're doing. And I go and approach them to hear from them. Well, you know what? I told so-and-so months ago. Or you know what? This family knew or that family knew and this family. Because I think to myself, did anybody love them enough? We could have probably headed this off a year ago. We probably could have helped them a year ago, loved them a year ago. But when I would go to people and I would say, how come we didn't say anything about this? You know what they would say? Well, that's just not my business. It's not my place. Well, I want to say, well, then whose place is it? Because here's what a rebuke tells us. When you go to Psalm and just turn there real quick, I just want to read it to you real fast. Psalm 141, it's an interesting psalm because it's David, again, pleading in this psalm that he would remain pure. 
Because he recognizes the people around him that are struggling. And before he wants to draw attention to the speck, he wants to make sure that he's dealt with the plank in his own eye. And so in 141, verse 3, here's what it says. He, he prays about himself. Lord, set a guard over my mouth. That's a great prayer for many of us. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Don't incline my heart to do evil things, to practice deeds of wickedness with men who do iniquity. Don't let me eat of their delicacies. But listen to what verse 5 says. He says, but let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It's like oil upon my head. Do not let my head refuse it. The blessing of a rebuke. You know what it means? It means that we're seen. That someone cares. When a, a rebuke comes into our life, even when it's poorly delivered, because most times we would say that's what we're fighting against is maybe the way that they said it wasn't the kindest way. But folks, you need to see beyond that sometimes people, they're heated, they're, they're upset, they're broken over what's happening to you, and sometimes they don't know the best way to come at you. They just know to just say it plainly sometimes. Now, we can learn a lot from the prophet because the prophet did an amazing job because he didn't have to condemn David. David would end up condemning himself. All he did for David is he went and told him a story. The prophet of God comes to Nathan, or Nathan comes to David because he was sent by God. Don't miss that in verse 1. This rebuke, and any time that we seek to correct someone and help someone, listen, we're being the hands and feet of Jesus to love them enough to help them where they are. And he comes to David and he simply says, Listen, let me tell you a story about two men. One was rich and one was poor. The poor man. He had one lamb, and it really wasn't a lamb that they were going to use to eat. It's obvious because he loved it, right? And I mean, he fed it, and I mean, it ate from the table, and it, it, laid, it almost describes a dog, right? I mean, it's kind of crazy. It's a lamb. He said it was like a kid to him. He says, the rich man has a guest who comes over and comes by. And back in that day, if you brought on a guest or, or someone who was traveling through and you took them into your home, you had to take care of them. You provided meals. Hospitality was a big deal in that time. And so he knew he was going to have to slay an animal to feed these travelers. And so literally what happens is he starts looking around and this rich man, he has tons of sheep. Tons more sheep than the poor man. But for whatever reason, the rich man looks at the ewe lamb of the poor neighbor next door and I guess he thinks he can get away with it. So he goes and he takes that lamb and he slaughters it. Well, David's had enough at this point. He can't see himself in the story yet. And out of his own mouth... He condemns himself because he basically looks at the prophet and says, who would do this? What kind of a man would do this? You bring him to me. A man that would do this, he deserves death. He's going to pay back everything four times. How could he have so little compassion? And at that moment, it still isn't registering with him. Until the prophet says, now that you're all worked up, David, you're that man. All you had to do in the story was swap sheep and wife, and you've got David sitting right in the middle of the story. And I mean, you can imagine the silence in the room. I mean, talked about like being naked, exposed, bare. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, no way to cover up your sin. In that moment, you can, I mean, just put yourself in David's place. My goodness. And I'm sure at that moment, with all the range of emotions that were going through David, I'm sure the initial slap in the face that it was when he realized the truth that the prophet had just spoken and the condemnation that he brought upon himself, the prophet didn't have to say anything. I believe David came to see this moment as a blessing.
someone cares, number one, God cares. The prophet cared enough to be obedient, to come and to do the hard thing to rebuke the king. It doesn't matter if the rebuke was poorly delivered or in bad timing or the tone is off. That's not the point of this story. Regardless, when someone loves us enough and has seen in us a value that they want to come and give us a grain of truth, then we've got to slow down and listen to that rebuke. And repent and thank God that we have people in our life that have the courage to say something. Folks, it's not easy to say something. I get it. I understand it. It's Trust me, it's no easier for me as pastor than it is for you. And I want to encourage you next time you think, hey, you know what? I'm going to go tell so-and-so or I'm going to make a, a, you know, anonymous tip in my Sunday school class that we have somebody who's doing horrible things. Listen, your first instinct ought to be, you know what? If I have a brother in sin, a sister in sin, I'm going to go and I'm going to share with them. I'm going to talk with them because I love them. When I was youth pastor, they never, listen, I, I can't tell you the number of people that would come to me and they would say, hey, pastor, you know, so-and-so, I found out this kid was smoking marijuana. My first response is, well, how did their parents take it? Well, what do you mean? Well, surely you called their parents. Oh, that's not any of my business. Wait a minute. Do you love that child? Yes. Do you see the path that could lead this child down, that that it's going to be death and destruction? Yes. But you know what? I don't want to risk my relationship. And I'm thinking, oh, you want me to risk mine. Folks, that's not who we are in Christ. Because the second thing is, that not only does it show us that we're seen, it also means that we're loved. You see, a rebuke from another believer in Christ, it should always be out of the motivation of love. I love the way Spurgeon put it. He put it very plainly. He said, you should depend upon it. The man who will tell you all of your faults. That man is your best friend. It may not be a pleasant thing for him to do it. He knows that he is running the risk of losing the friendship, but he is a true and sincere friend. Therefore, thank him for his reproof and learn how you may improve by what he tells you. Not only does it mean that we're seen and we're loved, But it means exactly what we started with. It means that we're blessed. Folks, don't suffer through reproof. And by suffering through it, I mean don't act as if it's this horrible thing that is coming upon you when someone seeks to help you by reproving you and by speaking into your lives. What you need and what will matter most in your spiritual journey is not when you have to suffer through it, maybe if it ever happens, but when you learn the best thing that you can do is invite that into your life. Let somebody get close to you. Have someone that you're accountable to that can speak into your life and call you out in a second because you know they love you and their heart is for you. Because to have someone in your life that's willing to rebuke you, it is a blessing. And it's a blessing from God. Don't shoot the messenger. Don't hate the messenger. Nathan was standing before David that day for one reason, because God said, you need to go speak to the king. And he was faithful to do it. You say, what happens if we don't take reproof? Well, the Bible says over and over, and you can get mad at me, and you can write me a note this week and say, you can't say that. The Bible said it. It wasn't me that said it. It says, if you can't accept reproof, you're a fool. It actually uses the term stupid in the Proverbs. It says that a man who refuses reproof, his life will ultimately be destroyed. And folks, this issue of reproof, this is the beginning of us being able to turn back to God and find forgiveness rather than hiding from God. This is the blessedness of this rebuke. But I want you to remember that 
Ruin comes to the fool who resists reproof. And it's going to be sudden, and it's going to be devastating. That's what it was for Saul. Saul had the same opportunities to repent, and he never did. He had the same opportunities to own his sin, and he never did. And listen, remember the progression. Three times they went to Saul. Samuel went to Saul and tried to reprove Saul. And every time he had an excuse, every time he had a rationalization, every time he was going to blame it on somebody else. And never forget what Proverbs 29.1 says. It says, He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. That leads us to point number two. The blessing of rebuke was one. Number two, the need for repentance. Folks, I can't tell you that when we recognize the blessing of a rebuke, it leads us to that place of repentance. Once David hears those words, you are that man. And then on top of that, as if that wasn't enough, I wonder, did the prophet let that hang? Because at some point he began to speak again and he says to David, listen, look at what the Lord has done for you. He made you king. He gave you the kingdom. On top of that, he's given David this eternal throne. And God says, listen, as if that wasn't enough, I would have done so much more. Why have you sinned against me like this? Do you hear God's words to him? And so the recognition of that moment you were that man coupled with what I think the Bible always says about sin, that ultimately when we think about sin, it's always about God. I mean, let me describe what he just said to him right here. He basically says to David that I've been faithful to you and you haven't been faithful to me. Now do you see why the Bible talks about sin as adultery over and over? Because God says, I've kept my covenant. I've kept my promises. I have been Faithful in every way, but you haven't been faithful to me. Hold that thought, because we're going to come back to it. And after hearing all of this, David, it simply shares with us. And trust me, David's hearing also about the repercussions, which we're going to get into next week, and the consequences of his sin are being laid out before him. By the time you get down to verse 13, David says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. He's come back to that moment of repentance. And folks, this is the most important part of what we see in David's life. What happens next is what makes David a man after God's own heart. He's going to confess his sin and all of its ugliness and throw himself on the mercy of God. It's what makes them different from Saul. Both of them were sinners. Both of them sinned badly. And we can also say that it looks like David's sin was much worse by the way we think of sin. But when Saul was confronted, he rationalized his disobedience. He passed the buck to someone else, the blame to someone else. Not David. He confessed his sin. And in a brief, simple statement, he throws himself on the mercy of God. And so what does that mean for us? We must confess our sin. When we talk about the need for repentance, we must confess our sin. By confessing sin, we're doing the opposite of what Saul did. We don't rationalize. We don't come up with excuses. We don't try to hide it. We don't try to deny it. And we certainly don't blame it on anybody else. But you see, that's, that's as old as the garden, isn't it? Because that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. If you remember they rationalized what they were about to do and they, they had a, a good excuse in their mind that God's holding back from us and He doesn't want us to be like Him. And they looked at the apple and they said, well, I know He said don't touch it, but it looks good. Why is God withholding some good from me, right? And in any way they could, they rationalized. But once they ate of it, you see what sin does. It always brings with it shame and guilt and they immediately, the Bible says, they recognize that they were naked for the first time. And what a picture of shame and guilt of being exposed because they knew that up to this point, every day in their life, God would come in the cool of the day. And in that moment when they knew that God was coming for the first time rather than running to Him, what did they want to do? They wanted to run from Him. Tried to cover themselves. 
And then when God finally got them to come out of the bushes, and he starts talking to them about it, they start blaming anybody and everybody else for what they did. Folks, that's not repentance. Repentance is confessing. It's standing before God and simply saying without any need to add to or take away from the statement that God against you and you alone, I have sinned. Confessing our sin means that we agree with God. Not just about what we've done, but who we are. Because until we come to grips with what's in our hearts, the depth of our being, the the wretchedness that lies within us, until we get to that point of recognition, then we can't come to Him and ask for the forgiveness that we so desperately need. Here's what I love about the Scripture and the promises of God. He says that if you confess your sin, which is the one thing that seems so hard for us to do, what does He say? If you confess your sins, God, He is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins, and He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let that sink in a second. And so we got to go back to the question, why do we run? Why do we hide? Why do we deny? Why do we blame? When God is sitting there going, come to me. Confess this to me so that you can be made whole again. David confessed his sin. Not only must we confess our sin, we must throw ourselves on God's mercy. We must put our hope in only one place. And it's not our righteousness. It's His mercy. It's not the good things that we do that we hope outweigh the bad things. Don't put your hope there because there is no hope there. The first time you sinned, you became a sinner. The first time you lied, you became a liar. The first time you stole, you became a thief. And it doesn't matter if it was a nickel out of your dad's wallet or whether you went and held up a bank. We've got to recognize that God's not going to give us a cosmic scale up there. Or we're not going to get to say, hey, you know what? I, at least I'm not the sinner that John is. John, you're just closest. I don't mean that in any way. You just, you're on staff and you're closest, all right? But I mean, it's not a comparison. I'm not going to get to stand beside John and hope that, hey, maybe I'm better than John. You know, maybe that'll be the case. And God will somehow look at him and not look at me. That's not the way heaven's going to be. That's not the way the judgment's going to be. It's not going to be a scale up there where, you know what, as long as the good doesn't uh, or the bad doesn't outweigh the good, that's not going to be it. Listen, even our jacked up justice system doesn't do things that way. Even in our justice system, I can't walk up and say, you know, today I committed murder, but I went every other day of my life. I don't know how many that is, but it's a lot of days and I never committed murder any other day. Is a judge going to look at me and say, not guilty, forgiven? Walk away. No. Because I'm not going to be condemned for what I didn't do. I'm going to be condemned for what I did do, where I transgressed the law. And folks, all I can do at that moment is claim I'm not guilty. I don't, how many of y'all are stood before a judge in a traffic ticket? It used to be, I mean, now I love it where if you go through, not that I get a lot of tickets, I'm just saying. If I got a lot of tickets, I'm, let me rephrase that. If I went before a judge, you know, and, and, you know, now you go through and it's like they just have these little things. It's just, I mean, it pretty much is, we've just gone by all the other stuff. It's really like, let's just give me your money and you can leave. That's pretty much what they've gotten it down to. It used to be you had to go before a judge. I'll never forget the first time I was like 20 years old and she's looking at me and she's like, how do you plead? And I, I thought I would be like, not guilty or guilty or whatever. I didn't, you know, I thought I wouldn't care. But I'm going to tell you, when you see a person up there with a robe that you know holds your future and your wallet, and everything else. I'm going to be honest. I was sitting there. I was shaking a little bit. And of course, she asked every other person. I, y'all, some of y'all heard this story. Every other person. She's like, sir, what do you do? And I thought, oh, dear God, please don't let her ask me that. Please. I don't want to confess I'm a pastor, and I've been caught speeding. And thank goodness she didn't. But I stood up there, and she didn't hesitate to just say, sir, are you guilty or not guilty? And the weight of saying, I'm guilty. I think most of us never really get to that point. We never really get to that point where we feel the weight of it. And let me tell you why we don't feel the weight of it. Because we're looking at the consequence. 
we're looking at what it may do to my life down here or how people are going to view me or whatever. You know when sin becomes tragic is when we recognize what it does to the heart of our Father. What it does to our relationship with Him. Many of us, we go through our life trying to change ourselves based on, you know what, I'm going to do it for my health or I'm going to do it for my wife, or I'm going to do it for so-and-so, or I'm going to do it so I don't have this repercussion. You know what? None of that will bring about change in your life. Only when you come back to the most basic thing of God against you and you alone have I sinned. I have grieved your heart in my sin, and I love you, and I know how much you love me and what you've done for me. Gentlemen, can you understand the difference? Maybe you can, because I get it. I don't respond nearly as much when my wife is mad at me as when she is hurt by me. If I just think she's mad, I'll rationalize, I'll justify. But I'm going to tell you, the couple times in our marriage where I realized my actions and my choices were hurting her and she wasn't angry, but I walked in and found her weeping, that was different. And that got my attention. That brought me back to the place that, you know what, I'm not just living life for me and my decisions aren't just affecting me and I made a commitment and a covenant to her and here she is crying on the floor. That's different. And most of us never get past this idea of God's just going to hit me with a lightning bolt. He's just up there angry and, he's just a, and, and we don't realize that he mourns the loss of fellowship and relationship with us that he created us for. I'm grateful that when we say we throw ourselves at God's mercy and it's not our righteousness, but it's His mercy, that there's no limit to it and there's no end to His mercy. It's not earned. It's grace. And Jesus says to us, I've paid the price for your sin. Come to me and confess it. And I'm faithful and I'm just to forgive it and to cleanse you from all your unrighteousness. And that leads to that last little point on the second point is that without repentance, I can tell you one thing will happen, we will perish. You say, how important is repentance? It's eternal. Thank God someone comes to us and rebukes us so that we have an opportunity to see how our sin is affecting our relationship with the Lord, how it's breaking His heart and destroying our lives, and we get to a place where we come to repentance and we turn because Jesus made it clear in John I mean, well, and he made it clear in Luke as well. Luke 13, Luke 3, uh, or uh, Luke 13, 3, Luke 13, verse 5. All of these places in the Bible, we find that Jesus would say over and over again that unless you repent, guess what? You will all likewise perish. He was looking at those Jews who were following him, who were listening to him that day, and they were comparing themselves to other people. And Jesus looks at him and says, what, you think because this tragic thing happened in our history and all these Jews died, you think you're better than them? He looked at him and said, no, no, you're not better than them. Unless you repent, you'll perish too. Folks, without repentance, the turning away from sin, the confessing of sin, asking Christ to transform us, without it, we will perish. All sin is against God first. It's not against others. If you go over to Psalm 51 with me real quick, I just want to read to you a couple things over there. This is a psalm that David wrote as he was repenting of the sins that he had committed with Bathsheba and Uriah. In Psalm 51, verse 1, he says, Be gracious to me. See there, he's not asking for what he's earned or deserves. He's saying, Lord, give me what I don't merit. What I've not earned, be gracious to me according to your kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion. He's asking for nothing other than the Lord's mercy. He's offered nothing else. He says, please blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. He's not denying it. He's not washing it away. He's simply saying, Lord, it's there and I need you to help me. My sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's almost the exact wording of the end of chapter 11. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He's saying, I'm not going to argue with you, God, over who I am and what I've done because you are exactly right. 
He says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in uh, in sin. My mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in your inmost being. In the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. There is that response to the blessing of a rebuke. Lord, it's like you had to break my bones to get my attention. But he said, it's joyful. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted. Against God and against God alone have we sinned. God was good and God was faithful and we forsook Him. And until we're most upset at what our sin has done to God, we'll never change. As long as our repentance is just a reaction to being caught in the bad circumstances we've created, then we're not really repenting. Folks, turn to the Lord without rationalizing, denying, hiding, and blaming and agree with Him. Because it leads us to the third point, the hope of restoration. I love what Psalm 51 teaches us and tells us. The way that Samuel simply and succinctly put it in chapter 12 is he simply says to David after he confesses his sin, he said, the Lord has taken away your sin and you shall not die. When we think about the hope of restoration, only Christ can restore our purity. When we come to God in repentance and when we humble ourselves before Him, do you realize that He says that when you humble yourself, He will exalt you? That if you come to Him and you're broken, He'll heal you. That if you come to Him and you say, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm like this, this candle burning that's about to go out, He doesn't come up and snuff it out all the way. That's not what he wants to do. He doesn't want to destroy you. He wants to deliver you. That's what restoration is all about, your deliverance. He'd rather exalt you, not condemn you. But the choice is up to you whether you will repent because he's made it clear and you see how David, these are David's words in Psalm 51, over and over and over and over. He says, I have nothing. And Lord, your compassion is what I'm clinging to. And because of that, you can... Take what was dirty and you can make it clean again. The way the prophets would say it, though your sins are as scarlet, he says, the Lord says, I can make it white as snow. There are so many in this room today, most likely, that you're just wallowing in the mud of your sin. You won't come clean with it. You won't come to Christ with it. And you remember how miserable you are if you go roll around the mud? It seems like it's fun for a second. But then you get up and it starts to dry and you get all nasty and you can't, you just, all you want to do is just go be clean again. And Christ has given you a way to be clean. He's given you a way to hate the mud and the muck and the mire of, of your life. And he, he says, come to me. I can restore you. I can cleanse you completely. Make you white as snow again. He could change the course of our life. Christ can also, secondly, restore your willing spirit. That's what I love about what happens when we repent and we come to Christ in humility and and we literally throw ourselves at His mercy and we ask Him to change us. He changes us, but not in some superficial way, but literally, He gets to the heart, doesn't He? He gets all the way down to the depth of who we are and He changes our nature when He saves us. And what that means is your want-to changes. The things that you wanted to do that were sin, now suddenly people ask me all the time, how do you change? Listen, that's like a mystery to me except for the fact that all I can tell you is when you put your hope in Christ and you cling to the cross and you trust that His death not only forgave you, but it freed you from sin, Christ says, I'm free, so by faith I'm going to believe that. All I can tell you is that the things I used to do, that I loved to do, that were sin, now I hate those things. 
And the things that I used to never want to do that were the things God asked me to do, those have now become the things that I hunger for. And what God did is he changed my heart. And when Christ restores us, he can restore to us a willing spirit because until you deal with the heart, any change you make will be superficial. God's not in to behavioral modification. He wants a recreation of the heart because the heart is who we are. And lastly, Christ can restore the joy of our salvation. You see, the reason why the joy of our salvation is so important is it's exactly what we talked about with the Salibis this morning. What drives a man to leave everything, to go and to proclaim the gospel around the world? It's very simple that this man has inside of him the joy of his salvation. You show me a man who is walking before Christ clean. Because you say, so many people say, I want to be used of God. I want to be used of God. One of the things that hinders us the most from being used by God is, listen, there isn't one of us that comes to Christ broken and chipped, right? If we were a vessel, the best way to describe us is a broken and chipped vessel. I don't know about you, but, you know, the dishwasher, every once in a while, I'll put a chip in glasses. I don't typically throw them away. It might even have a little crack that's actually not leaking, and I'll still keep that glass. And I would drink out of that glass, but let me tell you what I would not drink out of. A glass that is utterly filthy. That's why so many of us struggle to get on board with the mission that God has called us to is because we've yet to deal with our sin. And listen, God can use chip, broken vessels. He can take us with our past and we repent and He can restore us and use us. But He's not going to use a dirty vessel. A filthy vessel. And you say, then what do I do? Exactly what we talked about. Repent and run to the one who can cleanse you. He will restore you. Because when we talk about the joy of our salvation, if we don't understand the joy of forgiveness and freedom, then you know what? We're not going to tell another living soul about it. And I love the way he finished this section of, of Psalm 51. He literally says at the end, he says, after you've done all this and, and renewed the joy of my salvation and sustained me with a willing spirit, he says, then... You have to see the order. Then, after this, when you are right with the Lord and He's cleansed you and forgiven you and you're unburdened and unshackled from all that sin has done to you, He says He'll set you free. And then you're like the man who, guess what? I mean, if I walked in and said, hey, I want to give you a million dollars, are you going to just accept it and be like, cool, thank you? What are you going to do? You're going to be like, no, you ain't. I'm like, yes, I am. No, you ain't. Yes, I am. You're kidding. Nope. If you're a guy, you're probably going to strip your shirt off, run around the room, act like you're stupid. Then you're going to call people. You're going to say, you ain't believe it. Pastor Aaron, I don't know how he had a million dollars, but he had a million dollars, and he gave me a million dollars. You better check the church fund. <laughs> but you're going to tell everybody. You're going to be overwhelmed with something as simple as money. What is that compared to peace and love and joy in eternity with Christ? And so my question is, what's stopping us from going out and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? It might be that we are so stuck in our sinfulness that what we need is for the Lord to cleanse us and restore the joy of our salvation because then and only then will we be able to get up and to go. As the musicians come, I just want to finish with an illustration for you that I hope will just bring all of this home. I read a story about a little boy who was visiting his grandparents for the very first time at the new home that they had bought. In a, they had a lot of land, and the grandfather got him a slingshot. So like any little boy, he was going to take that slingshot and go out in the woods and have fun. And what he found was it wasn't super easy to fire a slingshot. And the more he fired it, the more he missed. After several days, he was just frustrated, and one day he saw his grandmother's duck walking across the yard. He thought to himself, you know what, I'm going to fire at this duck. He probably thought, I ain't going to hit it. Well, as you know how life goes, he pulled back that slingshot and he, slingshot and he fired it. 
And his aim was true that time, and that duck fell over dead. Man, he got scared to death. It was his grandmother's like pet. I mean, it was like the lamb. He's like, what am I going to do? So he takes it and he throws it in a wood pile and buries it, thinking I'll be gone by the time anybody realizes. And he goes back to the house, and that night as they're eating dinner, the grandmother says to his sister, Sally, hey, Sally, I want you to come wash the dishes. And Sally says, no, grandmother. Johnny said he wanted to help in the kitchen today. Isn't that what you said, Johnny? She leaned over and whispered to Johnny, I know about the duck. Johnny got up, washed the dishes. Sister was not going to be deterred, and she said, hey, we're going to keep this thing going. So the next day, Grandpa said, we're going to go fishing. Grandma said, no, Sally, you need to stay behind. we got some work to do. we got to prepare supper. Sally says, Grandma, no, no, it was an interesting thing. Today, Johnny said to me, you know what? I want to stay home, help you around the house and make some supper. Isn't that right, Johnny? She leaned over and said, don't forget, I know about that duck. That went on for the rest of the week until finally Johnny had had enough. And he went to his grandmother. When he could no longer stand it, he said, listen, I've got to confess it all to you, Grandma. And she took him in, his arm, in her arms and she said, Johnny, I already know what you did. You see, you didn't realize it, but I was standing at the kitchen window when you shot the duck. I saw the whole thing. And because I love you, I have forgiven you. She says, what I'm having trouble understanding is that you know I love you. And I'd like to think at the bottom of your heart, you know that I would forgive you. And she said, I've been watching, wondering just how long you would let Sally make a slave out of you. Folks, that's where a lot of us in this room are. How long are we going to let the devil make a slave out of us? We can confess. We can repent. We can be restored. We can have a new life and go on the path that God has for us. When the devil looks at you and says, I know about that duck, you need to say, listen, then let me tell you about my Savior. He loves me. And he's forgiven me. And I'm going to go confess to him. And he's going to make me clean.